0: you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel now therefore o kings be wise be warned o rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the sun lest he be angry and perish you in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him the word of the lord be to God. Well, good morning as I said before, I'm Ricky Allegretto, I'm the youth director here. So therefore, I thought, hey, we gotta get some youth up here. So thank you, T, for reading. I was texting several uh, folks this week and everybody had an excuse to be out of town this week. <laughs> T was the courageous one who said yes, he could do it. So, um, so I'm excited to get to speak with you guys this morning. And I was asked um, to step in and was told, you can talk about whatever you want. You don't have to stay in Psalms. So therefore, I'm going to talk to you about my life story. No, really, I'm going to do the Psalms. And uh, it's actually great timing because we as a youth group uh, studied the Psalms for 15 weeks last year. And our, our kids, our, um, we have a leadership team called our servant team. And they actually taught um, the lessons on the Psalms. And so it was really great to get to dig in with them. And study together, meet beforehand, and then see them teach. And I think um, when you do that, you tend to take it in a little bit more. And so it was cool to see the youth group respond to their peers, teaching them. And so we are doing that again right now on the parables of Christ. So our our, uh, Mary Gatilla just taught us last week. So anyway, so this morning, though, we're looking at Psalm 2. And you may ask yourself, Ricky, why are we looking at this psalm about nations raging, God smashing, and laughing? Seems like kind of an odd choice. Um, and yeah, maybe it is a little odd choice. But we do have 150 to choose from, right? And so there has to be some sort of criteria with which you approach your studies um, and which, with which you choose which ones to preach from. And so as I began to think about that this last week, not only did I think about how am I going to choose a passage, but I began to think a little bit more about how did these particular psalms get into our Bible, right? These psalms are written over the course of about a thousand years, really. Uh, According to tradition, Moses wrote some of them, and then David obviously wrote uh, quite a few of them, about 73. And then we have uh, more prophets and singers and priests writing them all the way into the time of exile, and it spans about a thousand years. That's pretty impressive, right? What if we went went back a thousand years? What songs, because that's what songs Psalms mean songs. What songs or poems would we choose if we were compiling a greatest hits list of our culture today, right? Maybe some Shakespeare, maybe some Milton, maybe some T.S. Eliot, um, others, maybe a little John Donne. These are, we would try and boil it down to the ones that we thought really represented who we are as a people, what we think, what we feel. And that's really what the nation of Israel was doing. And so not only when we look at the Psalms are we looking at uh, what was the author thinking about, the writer, the poet thinking about, but uh, the other part that interests me is why were these particular 150 Psalms compiled together and why did the nation of Israel think it was important to include this in their scriptures? The question of that I think comes actually not necessarily... From the time when the people were in um, were in the, the nation of Israel, being blessed by God, I think the answer to why these psalms were compiled and why we have them as they are today actually comes from a later later period when the people of God were in exile. The people of God had been stripped away of everything that they held dear. They had been taken from their homes. They had been taken from their land. They had been taken from their families. They had been taken from their regular uh, their regular practice of worship, everything they knew about God and were told in the law centered around the temple and the sacrificial system. Now, all of a sudden, the people were thrown into a foreign land they were being occupied, they were being ruled over, they were being oppressed, and in the midst of this period of uncertainty, they began to ask themselves, well, what do we do now? Where's God? How do we engage with him? How do we worship him now that we don't have our regular routine? We don't have our regular um, outward instruments of worship. What do we do? Has God abandoned us? Can we still relate to him? Can we still worship him? And so the editor of Psalms or editors brought these particular songs together to help the people of Israel worship. These are the prayers of God's people in the midst of a foreign land, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of uncertainty, anxiety, and chaos, when they feel far from God, and they don't know where he is, and he seems silent, and he's not speaking. They put these, this prayer book together to remind themselves about who God is, and instruct one another, and how they can still engage him today. And so, Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction to that. Psalm 1 and 2 give us the theme, which is found in the rest of the book. And so this morning, we're looking in particular at Psalm 2. And you're going to see that the psalm starts out, uh, as T. Walker read, why do the nations rage, right? Why do the peoples um, plot against God, right? And so whenever this was written, there was a time of chaos, Israel was surrounded by many enemies and foreign nations who wanted to bring God's people low, right? And eventually they do, and they take them into exile. And so this psalm is put right at the beginning of the book to remind God's people that in the midst of the raging, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the uncertainty, um, what do we do? Where's God? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, and I think that uh, this is something that You know, keenly applies to us still today, right? This psalm actually is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So, when the early church formed and they began to face persecution, we see in Acts chapter 4 that Peter and John have just been arrested and released and they're facing um, a lot of uncertainty themselves. What do they do? Well, they begin to pray. And what do they pray? They pray this psalm, actually. And so, The question for us today is, what do we do? The reason that this psalm appealed to the early church, the reason it appealed to the people of Israel in exile, the reason it's relevant to us, is because it's a song about how to handle stress. Or more specifically, how do we respond to chaos? How are we supposed to think, how are we supposed to feel when our world seems out of control? Um, That's the question. How do Christians operate in the middle of chaos? And that mattered to them, and it matters to us as well, because all of us have been in situations where we feel out of control. We feel like forces outside of us are determining things, they're making decisions that affect us, and we can't control those people. We've all felt the fear, the natural fear that rises up um, when we feel out of control, right? So how do you respond? And for some of us, that's very personal, right? Maybe your company's downsizing and you're out of control of your family's fate. Are you going to have to move? Or maybe your child's leaving home for the first time to go off to school, and all of a sudden, you can't control their lives and their choices and who they become and who they decide to hang out with and what they choose to major in and what job and career and spouse they go after. That's anxiety inducing, right? Um, or maybe for years now, you've been struggling in your marriage to feel like you're at home, and you feel like a stranger in your own marriage, right? And there's anxiety, there's chaos, there's depression, there's, there's fear, right? Um, or maybe it's a medical issue, and it's been going on for a long time, and you feel out of control and there's fear that comes in the midst of chaos. I know for Sarah and I, we experienced this keenly four years ago, almost to the day. Well, I'll give it about a month or so. Um, and you guys, are if you know us, you know this story. And yet I keep coming back to it over and over again uh, because... Um, the very theme that we're talking about today, about where's God in the midst of chaos, was very, very real and present to us when we uh, were out of our home. We left Rockwall. We were in Pennsylvania, that foreign, foreign land. (laughs) And Sarah's water broke at 25 weeks with Jack, and she was on bed rest for five weeks in the hospital in Pennsylvania with no family, No friends, no community, none of you guys were there, and then Jack came at 30 weeks and remained in the NICU uh, for for another eight weeks, was two pounds, nine ounces, and in the midst of that, we asked ourselves, where's God? There was anxiety, there was fear, will our little child make it? What will happen? And we felt very uncertain about how to seek God in the midst of that time. So... I think this passage applies to us corporately today, too. Maybe we're losing a pastor, right? Um, Maybe we're faced uncertainty with our worship together as a community, right? Um, Maybe we're feeling a little bit of anxiety or stress over it, even though we wish the Tompkins well and we believe in them and we love them. It's still stressful, right? There's still change. Everything that we've known about how we engage in worship as a community is going to change a little bit right? So where's God in the midst of that, and how do we renew our um, faithfulness to worship him, and what will that look like? So in Psalm 2, people are faced with a similar question, really in Psalm 1 and 2, because we have the people in exile compiling these psalms, And they set the premise in Psalm 1 and 2. What do we do in the midst of this foreign land, without our temple, without our sacrificial system, when we feel abandoned by God? And so we're going to look for just two seconds at the beginning of Psalm 1 and then dive into Psalm 2. And today we're going to see that the people of God um, came to the conclusion uh, that they were to look backward, they were to look up, they were to look forward forward and they were to look down, ultimately. And so, what does it mean? What do I mean by that? What does it mean to look back? Well, in Psalm 1, um, you're going to see that it says, "'Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates.'" day and night. And so right away at the beginning of the book of Psalms, um, the people of God are told if you want to experience blessing, the blessing of being in a covenant relationship with your God, the first thing you need to do is you need to choose whether you're going to walk in the way of the wicked or whether you're going to meditate on the law of God. And so the first thing you do when you're faced with uncertainty and you're wondering how to experience the blessing of God, the first thing you do is you look backward. You look to his law. You look to what has already been revealed to you. And so the nation of Israel is told, if you want to know God, go back to your roots Go back to the scriptures. Go back to what God's already revealed about himself and tell yourself that story over and over again. Remember what he's done for you. Remember his salvation from the land of Egypt, right? And so, and he uses the word meditate and that word meditate is kind of lost on us today because we think of meditation more, uh, you know, along the lines of yoga or whatnot. But the word meditate actually was a very active thing. Um, And what we see here is, the word meditate could be translated, recite to yourself over and over again. Tell yourself the story. Actively engage in remembering the law of God, the teachings of God, the Torah. And then what we're offered in the rest of the book of Psalms is the new teachings, right? How do we do that? As we meditate on what God has said and who he is in the past, how do we apply those principles into our current context today? Um, And so the first thing that we do is we look back and we meditate on the law of the Lord. Now, we try and do this today as a culture and as a society. In fact, if you go to Washington, D.C., you're surrounded by memorials, right? the Washington Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial. MLK Memorial now, Um, and the reason that we have these memorials as a society is because lest we forget the cost of our freedom, right? We're supposed to remind ourselves and tell ourselves our story as a nation over and over again of what our freedom cost, what our lifestyle required, and the people who went before us in order to do that, right? This is the same reason that we celebrate holidays, As the Christian church, we celebrate Easter and Christmas not for presents and candy, but to remind ourselves of who our God is and what he has done and why we are gathered together as his people. These are the institutions, the things from our past that inform who we are and make us who we are in the present. This is why we celebrate anniversaries, right? To remind yourself yearly... Hopefully you do it more than once a year. I am married, right? (laughs) And I married my wife this many years ago. I married my husband, and we were in love, and we actively engage with one another and celebrate one another and celebrate our marriage so that we may remain in love and fall deeper in love, right? This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. Uh, We come to the table as an act of remembrance of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Um, And so we are called by Psalm 1, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of anxiety and uncertainty, to look back and remember who God is and what he's done. The book of Psalms isn't meant to just be theology. This isn't teaching us about God. If you look at the Psalms, the Psalms are us engaging with God. It's taking that theology that we've learned, and it's applying it to our hearts and our lives, and regurgitating it back, reciting it to God, preaching it to ourselves, and remembering who he is, and asking him, I thought you were this, your word says this, this, your promises say this, but I'm not experiencing that, and I'm angry about it, or I'm confused about it, or I'm sad about it, right? And then ultimately, as we remember the promises of God, we say, even though I don't know when or how, I know that these promises will come true, and I, re- I, uh, I remember and I affirm that you're faithful to your promises. In um, In um, Jewish tradition, and in um, uh, Bible times, and Hebrew times, this isn't called the book of Psalms, which just means the book of songs. It's actually called the book of praises, um, because the book is supposed to remind us to praise God, bring everything, all of our uncertainties to Him, and praise Him. And so Psalm 1 reminds us of that. But today we're looking more so at Psalm 2, and we're going to find quickly the answer to the question, why do the nations rage, why do the people's plot in vain, right, is uh, answered by not only looking backwards, but it's also by looking up, right? It tells us here in Psalm 2, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God sits enthroned. Nothing changes that. The nation's raging doesn't change that. Your anxiety doesn't change that. Your depression doesn't change that. Your confusion doesn't change that. God's enthroned, and he sits there on his throne, and nothing can shake that. He sits secure, and his power is still established today, right? And so we look up. We're called to look up. His power and position are secure, right? No raging can cause that to come into question. In fact, it tells us he laughs. Why would God laugh? That seems a little strange, right? I, like, uh, I was thinking about this, and uh, my daughter, who's one and a half, quickly came to mind. Um, Betty likes to hit us. She likes to hit us quite a bit, actually. If you're holding her and she doesn't want you to hold her, she hits you. If you try and give her a kiss and she doesn't want you to give her a kiss, she hits you. If you try and change her diaper and she doesn't want you to change her diapers, she Hits you or kicks you in this case. So um, I was thinking about this example, and here we have this idea that these nations are raging against God, that they are trying to overthrow him, and God's laughing. And I thought, why would God laugh? And then I thought, well, why does Betty try to kick me? And then why do I laugh when I'm changing her diaper? Because it's kind of cute. Maybe it's wrong and rebellious, but at the same time, you know she's not going to have her way. Her diaper's going to be changed, and it's kind of cute that she thinks that there's any other outcome, uh, when in fact it's inevitable, right? And so that image came to mind. God laughs. Um, So you might feel the rage. You might feel the chaos. You might feel the uncertainty. You might not see God in the middle of the storm, and yet God's there, and he's in control, and nothing will change that. This last week weekend we went camping, um, and I missed all of this luckily, but the first day, Thursday afternoon, everybody had just set up their tents and had just uh, begun to hang out, when off in the horizon, this storm was brewing, right? But it wasn't a big storm. It was just like, I was told it was just like a cylinder of of downpour. And it it started to come across the, the lake and it, it, it became quickly evident that this was gonna hit our campsite, right? And so people ran and jumped in their tents. Zach and a couple guys, we had a canopy and they just like Mary Poppins kind of grabbed on to the, <laughs> the poles. Um, And this storm came, and it was a downpour. Apparently, uh, the barn's tent blew into the lake, I think. Uh, the rain was coming in sheets sideways like you can see from me to the first row it was so thick and um, so because the rain was coming sideways it was coming right into tents people got three inches of water uh, in their tents the brand new canopy that we built or that we had bought was completely destroyed Um, and we threw it out afterwards and in the middle of the storm uh, it felt like why did we do this why are we out here camping right (laughs) As fun as this sounded, this has now become quickly a miserable thing. Uh, And yet, with a little perspective, because it was just this, basically, this cyclone, this cylinder of rain, it quickly dissipated. And we went on to have a wonderful weekend. But when you're in the middle of that downpour, when you're in the middle of that storm, and you can't see in front of your face, and your tent is full of water, or in the lake... It's easy to question God, it's easy to question your decisions, it's easy to question our practice of worship and why we do the things we do. And yet we can look up, and we know, even when we don't see him, that God is on his throne. We can also look forward. Um, As we go on, we see that this is actually a coronation psalm. Um, And what that means is this psalm was written when David or someone from his line was about to become king. And In this psalm, um, we see that the people of Israel are anointing uh, this new king, and God is speaking to them, saying, I'm the one doing the anointing, and this one has my power, right? Um, He's my son. He's reborn. He's my representative here on earth. He's your king, and he carries all the power and the weight and the authority of me right? We're all looking for a king. Um, if we look at all of our narratives that we tell ourselves, our myths, everything from Robin Hood, right? Where Robin Hood is just trying to hold down the fort until the king returns to King Arthur, right? Who on his, who on his tomb, it says, the once and future king, right? Right? to a more modern day, J.R.R. Tolkien, right? Where we tell ourselves these myths where we desire for there to be a king, right? Or the latest example, the Marvel Avengers superhero uh, mythology that's now developed where we need a superhero or a group of superheroes to come and rescue us, right? We all want a king. Um, and... <laughs> And we're all looking for a king, and maybe we don't, um, maybe we don't even realize this, but this is, this is something that we still regularly do today. Um, I was reading about Jeffrey Schmaltz. Jeffrey Schmaltz was a former journalist of the New York Times um, in the late 80s and early 90s. Jeffrey Schmaltz found out uh, in 1990 that he had AIDS, And then he continued to chronicle his experience in the early 90s of what that looked like um, and writing writing periodic articles in the New York Times um, until eventually in 1993 he passed away. An article was published posthumously, however you would say that, uh, a few weeks after he passed away uh, and it was his last article. And in this article he relates... um, he, he relates the fact that he's finally come to terms with the fact that he's going to die, and yet he talks about what that was like for him to come to that realization. He talks about how he had had the chance uh, before he died to interview Bill Clinton, who at the time was running for president, and how Bill Clinton had an engaging, thoughtful conversation over the AIDS issue with him, and he really felt He says, foolishly, I felt if I can just hang on long enough to elect this man, then he will be my white knight. He will be my savior. Somehow, I will be okay. Uh, We all do that. We all desire a savior. When we feel out of control and like the situations in chaos, we want someone to come swooping in for us, right? Um, And so many times, we don't turn to our king, Jesus Christ, we turn to counterfeits, right, instead of the king. So whether that's us trying to place ourselves on the throne, whether that looks like if we can just get the next promotion, then my family will be secure. If we just move over here, then we'll be better off. If we just got into that house, then we would, you know, finally be happy, right? If only my kid gets into that school or gets, into that, or gets that job, then, you know, I can rest at ease. Uh, whatever it is that we tell ourselves. Right, or maybe uh, maybe our counterfeit king is our anger is our depression, is our anxiety. That rules and reigns on our hearts, and we're proud of it. Eventually, we get to the point, we say, we tell ourselves this story, nothing can save me from that, and I find my identity in my depression, in my anxiety, and I'm not even going to struggle against it anymore, right? Uh, And that becomes our counterfeit king. At least that's a friend. At least that anxiety never leaves me. Every night I go to bed, and it's there, right? Um, And so... We're told, though, that, that we don't have to turn to counterfeits, right? This psalm, when you look at it, um, it was written about an earthly king, and yet it was idealistic, it was aspirational. No earthly king could ever fulfill this. It talks about a king who will rule over all the nations. Well, no Israelite king ever ruled over all the nations, right? And so what we see is during the time of exile, the people grab onto this psalm. They place it as an introduction to the book of Psalms because they know that there needs to be a future king. And so they they are looking forward and reminding themselves that God promised a Davidic king who would sit on the throne, who would bring them back to him, who would rule the nations, who would make peace. And so they remind themselves not only to look backward to God's faithfulness, not only to look upward and remember that he was still on his throne, but also to look forward and to hope for his future deliverance, to know that he would come again that He would set them free. He would establish a king. And what we see is the early church recognizes this and grabs a hold of this, and we see Jesus being called the Son of Man, right? We call it, hear Jesus being called the Anointed One. The Anointed One is the Messiah. That's what it literally translates into, is the Anointed One. And then we see the early church in the book of Acts, in the book of Hebrews, uh, acknowledging that Christ is this king, that he is the one Uh, who has come and who God has established on the throne. And yet, even though he has been coronated, even though he has been recognized, the culmination of his reign is not yet here. He doesn't rule all the nations. They still rage around us we still have chaos in our hearts. We still have questions and anxiety. Where is Christ in the midst of all this? And what we have to understand is that God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, and his kingship is a little bit upside down, right? It says here that he's going to come, this king, with a rod of iron, the scepter of iron, and he's going to dash all the nations like pottery. What can stand in the, in, in the midst, uh, in the face of this rod of iron? Can pottery? When iron goes against pottery, iron wins every time. What if the iron rod hits the pottery? Iron wins, right? What if the pottery hits the iron rod? Iron still wins, right? Every time, iron will win. Well, then what happened? Because Christ doesn't win, he dies, right? In fact, he becomes that pottery that's broken um, on our behalf. And we begin to realize, as we look at this psalm, and as we look at how it plays out, uh, through what's later revealed to, through Christ, that maybe, uh, maybe when we approach God and we instead choose not to kneel or bow before him, but we choose a counterfeit king, that maybe we too are not actually amongst the people of God like we thought, but maybe we're amongst the enemies that are raging, right? Maybe our hearts too are raging, Maybe the reason that there's so much chaos and anxiety and fear in our lives is because we create it all the time. Maybe we're part of the enemies of God. And so Christ comes and says, I will be the enemy of God. I will be the pottery that is smashed on your behalf, right? So that through death, there's now an upside-down way. Revelations 19, verse 15, tells us, though, there is a day where he is coming again and his rule will be culminated and he will come with that rod of iron. Um, It refers to Christ coming on a white horse with a sword coming from his mouth and a rod of iron in his hand. God's ways will not be thwarted. God will reign and we look forward with hope to that day and we know that we do have a future king who's coming. So, Why do we wait? Why can't that happen now? Where's the justice now? When my mother's dying of cancer, where's God in that, right? When the people of Mozambique who are already uh, amongst the poorest of the world are hit with a cyclone and lose their homes and their children's lives, where's God in that, right? Um, When I lose my job, where's God, right? Why do we wait? Why does God wait? Why doesn't he bring justice and peace now? As we look at the end of the psalm, we're told this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you remember Psalm 1, opened up with that same phrase, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So Psalm 1 begins with blessing, Psalm 2 ends with blessing. It's important to note that the reason that God doesn't come and smash everything now and bring justice on earth is because that would require them that he smash us also, right? There are, instead of, instead of rage, wrath, and anger, which is what you expect here, nations are raging against God. He laughs in derision. He gives his king a rod of iron Now let the smashing party begin, right? Instead, what we're told is, be wise. It's not too late, kings. You can stop raging. You can be warned, O rulers of the earth. You can kiss the sun. You can come, and you can look down. You can bow down. Lest he be angry and you perish, because his justice will come his kingdom will be established. But if you take refuge in him, there's blessing. He offers that to us today. We can look down. God is compassionate. He will bring justice, but he's offering grace. So the early church prays this prayer. As I mentioned before, right after Peter and John get out of prison. And they're told, stop preaching, stop proselytizing, stop proclaiming the gospel, or else we will end you. We will kill you. And so they gather together, and they rejoice, and they pray this prayer. And they say uh, to them, they remind themselves um, that there is one who is the Son, who's been chosen, and who they now offer and continue to preach to the world, right? And if they lose their lives, they lose their lives. They continue to preach the Son because they recognize that he's the one who sits on the throne and the power of God's behind them. God's provided a refuge from the wrath of God through the Son of God. So we can find calm and confidence in our lives in the midst of the raging, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the fears and the uncertainty as we take refuge in him. But, God, it doesn't end there, right? We're called to invite others to do the same. So who's the boss who you feel like is always threatening you? Maybe it's your spouse that you share a bed with that you feel like is your enemy at times. Maybe it is um, the doctors themselves and the uncertainty of your health situation that you're facing, right? Right? Um, And what God reminds us here is not only does he offer grace to us, but he also also admonishes us to extend grace to those we would deem as our enemies as well. What does that look like? How do you reach out to your spouse? How do you reach out to your boss? How do we reach out to one another when we've been offended in times of chaos and uncertainty, when we're estranged from a parent, or when we're faced with moving, how do we continue to live out God's grace and extend it to those around us, even when they don't extend that same grace towards us? We're reminded of God's promises. We look backwards. We remember that we too, once were in need of a Savior, that we too were hopeless We're slaves to sin. We too once dwelled in darkness, but now we have seen a great light. And because of that, we're able to extend that same grace and that same message of salvation to those who are in the midst of darkness as well. We look up. We remember God's still on his throne. We don't have to feel insecure when we're striving at work with a coworker or we're trying to vie for that promotion or when we're um, in our community groups and we hear someone's got a new car and we begin to feel threatened. We can stop striving and recognize we're not in competition with one another all the time, right? We have a God who sits on his throne and he calls us sons and daughters and he's our father. You don't have anything or anyone to prove, you don't have anyone to prove anything to, right? Um, And we look forward. We remember that Christ is coming again, not only in grace and mercy, but to establish a kingdom and with justice. And we too can serve one another. We can serve the poor. We can serve our family members. And by doing so, we're serving Christ himself. And we look down. We remember that we submit the knee before God, and we recognize um, that we too were enemies of God, and He's now invited us to come and take refuge in Him, and we can do that today. You know, since we um, since we got back from all that happened with Jack uh, when he turned one years old, we threw a big party, and we invited the whole church. We did it over at CRI, and everyone came out. And it was so much fun, and we felt loved and appreciated, and we got to hear how so many of you were praying for us and praying for Jack during that time. Um, we also went up back up to Pennsylvania a few months after that when he was one and a half, and we gathered all the doctors and nurses who had been involved with Jack's care, and we threw a little party for them. And we got cake and refreshments and invited them to come and meet Jack. The reason that we did that um, was really just purely out of gratefulness and gratitude and uh, humbleness, right? The fact that we were so humbled by the outpouring of love that we had received, by the community that we were surrounded by, but we also did it because we didn't want to forget, right? We didn't want to forget that God had showed up in our family's life in a real and tangible way. Um, and we wanted to celebrate that and mark that, and Jack is marked by that, and we're grateful, and we rem- I remember every time that we look at him, but especially on birthdays, um, especially when we go back up to Pennsylvania, we're reminded of those things, and we're called to do the same. In the midst of uncertainty, anxiety, remember who God is and what he's done. Remember he's still on his throne. Look forward with hope. He is coming again, right? So submit to him now. Look down. I'm reminded and conclude with this. Hymn that comes from the 19th century um, that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking stand. Let's pray.